You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this. You'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, Charles Ponzi was a schemer. So much so that we named an entire brand of scam after him. So what did he do to earn the namesake rights? It's no secret that inflation is hurting the American consumer and prices are rising on, well, everything. But within the rising tide, there remains one constant a drink can that has somehow maintained its price point of 99 cents for 30 years. How does Arizona brand iced tea do it? Chuck E. Cheese became the place where a kid can be a kid, surviving while its rivals all shut their doors. It continues to be so, though, due in part to an insane commitment to holding on to what once made it unique. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. Jay, I know it may be hard to admit, but have you ever been sucked into something that maybe seemed too good to be true? I mean, not fully sucked in, but I am notoriously gullible and uh, sort of fell for a lot of early pyramid scheme recruitment attempts uh, throughout the, uh, you know, you know, when that was going on right around the 20, 2010s or so, like pyramid schemes kind of became like a big thing and people were getting involved in them and sending you messages on Facebook. Like I'm the guy who fell for that. Like, oh, you want to connect with me after not talking to me for 10 years? Like how nice. Like I, I, I thought maybe we were just done, but I guess we're not. Yeah, we've talked about this before, but it's the classic, the person that you barely knew from high school, they message you on Facebook. Hey, you've been looking to make more money or how's your job <laughs> been going? You ever thought about extra revenue streams? The only time I ever got kind of close was my freshman year of college. A guy, once again, barely knew him from high school, sent me a message along those lines. Hey, I got this really cool business idea. They're always vague. They never say what they are. I've got this really cool business venture going on. Um, I think you'd be great could you come to this kickoff meeting where a guy's coming in from out of town and he's going to talk to me and a couple other people about how we could, we could make up to $3,000 a month in extra income? And I thought, well, of course I'll go. So I, I actually went to the thing and I opened the door. It was in like this conference room and I opened the, at a hotel and I opened the door and it was just two guys sitting there with a PowerPoint up on the screen and I just slowly snuck back out and left. So he never knew I was actually there. But Jay, we often call these pyramid schemes or Ponzi schemes. And while the opportunity may differ, the core idea is always the same. I get you to invest into something, often just an idea, with the promise of huge financial returns. Sometimes the call is for you to recruit others to do it. And sometimes your investment is enough. Like, Jay, let's say you give me $1,000 today, and I tell you I'll give you $2,000 next week. Seems too good to be true, right? Well, of course it does, because it is. Which actually, after the show, let's talk. I do have something I want you to consider. (laughs) But today, Jay, we go one step deeper. Why is it called a Ponzi scheme? Was Ponzi a person? Well, yes. Standing at just five foot two inches, 
Italian immigrant Charles Ponzi had an idea over a hundred years ago in 1920 that would lead to him making an estimated $15 million in just eight months. And Jay, if you adjust the purchasing power of the dollar from 1920 to today, the total would be more like $230 million. So how did he do it? And do it so well that the entire scheme would bear his name today. Like most attempts at fraud, it seemed complicated on the surface. Well, the story goes something like this. Being a very intelligent man, Charles Ponzi came to a realization one day while mailing a letter out internationally. Fluctuating currency rates meant that the cost of international postal reply coupons could vary wildly. Jay, basically these postage coupons were vouchers that the sender of a letter from one country could include in the mailing so that the recipient could reply from another country without dealing with complicated exchange rates. Ponzi made the claim to potential investors that he could purchase the coupons abroad at a discounted rate and then sell them in the U.S. at a tremendous value, meaning incredible levels of potential profit. But as far as the information on how the scam went, well, that was it. Ponzi did not reveal the actual guts of the plan or didn't really tell people how he'd do it. He claimed that competitors would steal the idea if he gave too much information away. Jay Ponzi promised a 50% profit to investors within 45 days of the money exchange and a 100% profit within 90 days. And believe it or not, in the early days of the scam, Ponzi actually delivered on these returns. So naturally, due to what seemed like incredible success, investors were lining up to hand over their money with the hopes of massive wealth headed their way. But it'll come as no surprise that the scam artist's namesake was, in fact, scamming people. The math just didn't add up. And Ponzi was only able to pay investors using money from new investors. There were literally no profits. Jay, eventual investigative reports by the Boston Post newspaper would lead to a federal criminal investigation, mail fraud charges, and the end of the original Ponzi scheme. But Ponzi didn't 100% lie. He did actually buy some postal reply coupons, an estimated $61 worth. And Jay, whether it's the original Ponzi scheme or the more recent Bernie Madoff investment scheme to the tune of $50 billion, 100 years after Charles Ponzi ran his scam, we still haven't learned much as a society. According to Times Magazine, in 2019, U.S. law enforcement discovered 60, quote, major Ponzi schemes with victims investing $3.25 billion. With the true number of active schemes impossible to know, that's probably just the tip of the iceberg. But Jay, once again, only one thing is for certain. If it feels too good to be true, if it seems too good to be true, you know, it's crazy, but it just might be too good to be true. You know, last week on the show, we talked about MySpace, and nobody was trying to do this to me on MySpace. You know, I was just making my page, putting my song on it, organizing my top eight. Everybody else was doing the same. No messages trying to take my money. It was beautiful. Let's go back to that. Well, Dave, one thing I know about you is that you love a good deal. You love getting something on sale. We all do to a degree, but you just like 
triumph over it. With that in mind, can you think of a time that you either got a really good deal or maybe someone in your orbit got a really good deal, a story that stuck with you? I do. I love like having a connection. Like, hey, yeah, this guy got me free tickets or whatever. Like, <laughs> I just love feeling like I you have love some kind just, of insight. You love knowing I, a guy. I do. You lo- some kind of inside route. Yeah. yeah. Like, I could. oh, I can just call this guy. It doesn't have a name in my phone, but just trust me. This is, I'm going to get it right. done. But actually, the... The story that comes to mind isn't me. It's actually, it, it concerns two different people that I know that don't know that I know them both. And so really the way the story goes is a friend of mine a couple of years ago, he got a new car. And so I, I, we hung out. I, I met up with him. I saw the new car. said, hey, it's a great car. I didn't realize you got a new car. Yeah. He said, you know, I wasn't going to, but man, I went to this dealership and I got an incredible deal. Like I, the deal was so good that I think they may actually have to fire the guy. Like, he just basically gave the car away. Like, <laughs> man, it was just awesome. So I'm thinking, wow, okay, well, this is cool. Well, like a week later or something, another friend of mine, who just happened to be a car salesman, tells me, yeah, um, I've had a really good month this month. Uh, I sold a car a week ago to a guy and just destroyed it. <laughs> I got an incredible commission on it. I can't believe he actually bought it. And of course, Jay, they were talking about each of other. Of course, yeah. So the, the moral of the story is the psychology of the situation is we love thinking we're getting a deal, even if we're getting completely ripped yeah, off. Yeah, ignorance is just truly bliss in that situation. I just wouldn't touch anything. Don't tell anybody anything. <laughs> just let each side <laughs> believe what they believe. I mean, he really said, I think they're going to fire <laughs> Well, today, Dave, we're exploring a mystery that has puzzled me off and on for years, but more so recently, and that is how does Arizona brand iced tea still only cost 99 cents despite rising inflation? So if you don't know what I'm talking about, Arizona Beverages produces several flavors of tea-based drinks that come in these 23-ounce cans, and they're often found at gas stations across the country, and they cost 99 cents. It's printed right on the can, and that's literally the same price that they have been since they hit the market 30 years ago. This is cheaper than 20-ounce sodas, canned coffees, and even bottled waters on the market today. So with the rising price of, well, everything, how does Arizona continue to pull this off? The price of aluminum has doubled over the last couple years. The price of high fructose corn syrup has tripled since the year 2000. Gas prices have risen over the past year, and even at their peak in the middle of last year, the 99-cent Arizona tea remained 99 cents. So how? Well, the short answer here is that the company just makes less money. Although the cans are still profitable, they're not nearly as profitable as they were a few years ago. The founder and chairman of the company, a man named Don Voltaggio, told the LA Times, I'm committed to that 99% price. When things go against you, you can just tighten your belt. I don't want to do what the bread guys and the gas guys and everybody else is doing. Consumers don't need another price increase from a guy like me. And Dave, Voltaggio has the advantage here of actually being able to say that with conviction because Arizona is one of the few still independent private beverage companies in a world that shares a market with consolidated powerhouses like Pepsi, Coca-Cola, and others. And at least for the moment, the Voltaggio family has little to worry about. The company is owned in its entirety by Don and his two sons, and Forbes puts their combined net worth at over $4 billion. 
The 99 cent cans are only part of their overall business, but the company pushes a billion of them a year, making up about 25% of the total company revenue. So clearly the price and the product are one and the same here. The brand is synonymous with the 99 cent advertising, and that strong brand recognition has helped Arizona continue this really incredible run for 30 years at the same price. Voltaggio estimates that while raising prices even a little would lead to some short-term growth, it isn't worth the long-term consequences. Telling the LA Times, your company has to deal with cost increases, but your customers have to deal with cost increases too. If you break their back, nobody wins. Also, Dave, it's pretty agreed upon by economists that prices ending in nine tend to stick around a little more stubbornly despite inflation. Alan Chin, a professor of marketing at the University of Kentucky, actually studied prices in Israel during a period of high inflation and noted, if you look at these nines, they are much more rigid. Sam Dean at the LA Times went on to say, in addition, retailers resist edging up by one or two cents and losing the supposed psychological benefit of that final nine. But when they do jump, they jump big, 10 cents to land on another nine or even further. Surprisingly, this affinity for nines holds even in online shopping, in which digital payments don't require exact change. And while that all may be true, Dave, I think if you get familiar with specifically Don Voltaggio himself, the 99 cent price point just makes a lot more sense. His image is that of a blue collar guy, and the price point for him is a sense of trust between the company and the consumer. At this point, even telling consumers in a heartfelt message why you have to raise prices probably wouldn't go over well because the brand is so synonymous with 99 cents. But that isn't all. The company has worked to cut costs by utilizing more suppliers across the country to cut distribution costs. They've reduced the amount of aluminum in their cans. They let the product itself do most of the marketing. I mean, when was the last time you saw an ad or a billboard for Arizona? In fact, they only employ about 1,500 people total, with only 350 of those working in the marketing department. But still, the economics of all this are absolutely brutal right now when you can't raise the price itself to match. But within it all, the steadiness remains, and who knows how high inflation ultimately has to go to break Arizona, or if it ever will, but in a world of constantly rising prices, it's kind of nice to see. Yeah, and sometimes things cannot be broken. So if you remember last summer, Costco came out and said, hey, you know what? Our our famous combo of the hot dog and drink at Costco, that's $1.50. Not only are we not raising that, we're not raising it forever. It will never, <laughs> ever change. And so the rest of the prices at Costco continue to fluctuate just based on what the economy says. But the hot dog drink combo, Jay, will forever, according to the CFO Richard Galanti, be $1.50. Jay, when you were a kid, what was something that to you felt like heaven? Like anytime you got to do it, see it, taste it, whatever, it was the greatest day of your life. Well, I'm from a pretty small town, and there wasn't a lot of places to host birthday parties in this small town, but there was one place. It was a roller rink called Rollerama, 
and uh, it was like the place. Like I can <laughs> see it. Oh yeah, I can just you can see, see it. it, smell it, feel it. However you think it looks on the inside, it looks that way. It was old. There was a big strip of duct tape going like right down uh, the middle yeah. that you would just trip on constantly. It, oh, yes. One time the lights went out during a party and some people broke bones because they fell everywhere. I mean, it was just, you know, arcade games. Like it was just the place, you know, to go. Uh, it's not open anymore because, you know, it was probably like complete trash. <laughs> like it was held together I, by duct if tape. I wasn't, if I wasn't a kid going in there, I'd be like, what is this place? Uh, but <laughs> man, as a kid, like there was, there was nothing better than getting invited to go to a birthday party there. It was, uh, it was the, like the most fun day of your life when you were in there. Jay, for me, it had to be a trip to the local arcade. So sometimes these places were called Showtime Pizza. Sometimes they were called Billy Bob's Wonderland. But these kid-focused arcades featured mediocre food, addicting arcade games like skee-ball or the basketball free-throw challenge, and most memorably, they had an animatronic band that played songs. Kind of had many concerts throughout your visit. Now, a sad side note on this, Jay. My, My hometown had a place called Showtime Pizza, and one winter we had a really, really bad snow and Jay, the place literally collapsed. Like the, the <laughs> snow on the roof got so heavy that it destroyed the entire building. Just shame. <laughs> Complete shame. Just watching history die right in front of your oh, eyes. It's terrible. But Jay, while Showtime Pizza and Billy Bob's are all but extinct, one chain, a chain that originally was named Showbiz Pizza Place, has still survived. What do we know it as today? Well, Chuck E. Cheese. The place where a kid can be a kid. But you see, Jay, while Chuck E. Cheese has survived while others have not, it's done something extremely hard to do in the process. It's figured out a way to evolve while still holding on to strategic pieces of the past. While the mouse mascot, Chuck himself, has changed through the years, like in 2012 when he was rebranded into a guitar-wielding rock star, part of the experience has not. That is, until now. And what is that, you ask? Well, it's the legendary, nostalgic-inducing, animatronic mouse band. While many stores have already moved on from them in favor of dance floors or television screens, a lot of Chuck E. Cheese's still have them. And here's the crazy part. The animatronic bands have always run on, wait for it, floppy disks. (laughs) And until now, like we're talking 2023, the Chuck E. Cheese corporate office has still shipped out new updated floppies. <laughs> the last version, titled Chuck E. Cheese Evergreen Show 2023, was shipped out in January of 2023, according to Stuart Coonrod, a current employee from Illinois. And while the nostalgic part of me hurts, the rest of me is kind of in awe. Developed and first utilized in the early 1960s, floppy disks were the original way to move data from one machine to another. Becoming commercially available in 1971, floppy disks really had a great run, with an estimated 5 billion floppy disks being used in 1996. But Jay, that was 1996. Floppy disks are basically obsolete today. So to think that Chuck E. Cheese was still making them until January 2023, just to hold on to the animatronic mouse band is truly mind-blowing. But it also shows a commitment to holding on to the things 
that made them truly the place my generation couldn't get enough of. And Jay, my generation, your generation, well, we now have kids. Talk about next-level customer service. And Jay, as incredible as that commitment has been to keeping the animatronic bands going, it may now be over. But still, some Chuck E. Cheese restaurants have opted to use costume characters instead to keep the magic alive. And change isn't always bad. When Chuck E. Cheese opened its first location in 1977, it wasn't Chuck who was fronting the band. Instead, it was a character affectionately named Krusty the Cat. (laughs) And Jay Krusty wasn't much of a hit with audiences, believe it or not. So he was replaced a year later with a much more family-friendly character named Mr. Munch. (laughs) Family-friendly. Uh, I'm looking at the Wikipedia article for Chuck E. Cheese. Are you aware that Chuck himself, the mascot, his full real name is Charles Entertainment Cheese? <laughs> that's canon. I mean, that's real. Like, uh, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not uh, making that. It's official Wikipedia. Charles so, Entertainment Cheese, also known as Chuck E. Cheese. What would you say is the most flexible name? You know, like you're named something. Like the Chuck E. Cheese thing has me thinking. Like, is Charles the most flexible name? Because you got Charles, Charlie, Chucky, Chaz. I mean, there's a lot of things. Like yeah. Richard, you got Richard, Richie, Dick for some reason. For for a guy, yeah. Um, like my wife's name is Elizabeth. So for a girl, Elizabeth's very flexible. Because you can do like Eliza or Liz or like Lizzie or Beth. Seems like kind of those longer, more traditional names. They've been around well, every, for a every while. once in a while. Yeah, every once in a while, though, you get a name like Christopher. So Christopher, Chris, whatever. And then some people go Topher. I've never like, heard get, that get out before in my life. <laughs> yeah, yes, you to- Topher Grace, the dude from that '70s show. Well, I, would, I think his name's Chris. I would hope that uh, by the time someone's an adult, that that has been bullied out of them, and they're just going by Christopher by that point. But I guess if you slip through the cracks. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast network. We're on social. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jason, and I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week. Econ- Economists. <laughs> Economists. <laughs>